Two weeks ago, as we were in the uh, book of 1 Samuel, we were on that wild and crazy uh, children's story, very popular children's story, at least in Christian homes, that fairy tale, that fantasy about Davy and Goliath. There was even a cartoon show many, many years ago um, that was, I don't know if it was claymation or what, that's how old, long ago it was called David and Goliath, and Goliath was his dog, and you know, oh, it's just so comfy and everything else to reduce the Word of God to a fairy tale and a children's story. The problem is we're reading in what is called historical narrative. We're not reading in fairy tale. We're not reading in poetry. We are reading in a documentation of what transpired in history. And if we lose sight of that fact, then yeah, it's easy to take the more fantastical stories of the Old Testament, given though in a historical genre, such that God is underscoring the fact that even Jonah and the fish and stories like David and Goliath are not just allegories or metaphors. They are real that occurred to real life people. David was a real life individual and Goliath was a real life giant. When I am reading any number of my, I'm usually reading numerous books at one time, and it doesn't matter because I can't remember any of them anyway. So I just go from one to the next one, and you know, it's kind of interesting when you're reading in historical genre, which I am. I'm in this ongoing pursuit of reading about the uh, history and the origins of America. And when I pick up, for example, David McCulloch, and he's the, the ingenious, wonderful, awesome, I think the best historian that is alive, and he's an elderly man now, I think in his 80s even, and he's still churning out great works. He wrote John Adams in 1776. When I pick up one of those books and I'm reading it, I realize that I am reading the genre of historical narrative. So whatever I read in there, whatever descriptions are being given, if he's talking about big battleships blowing things up or what have you, I know that I am reading what actually took place in history, not some kind of allegory or metaphor that we're supposed to take away some life lesson from. David and Goliath is not about the giants in your life that with faith in God you can conquer no matter how big it is. We're reading about a young man who was handpicked by God to be the next king after Saul and about a very real warrior of the civilization of the Philistines who was a giant, not a jack-in-the-beanstalk kind of giant, but he was a giant in that by the data that were given in the historical narrative, he could have been as large as nine feet nine. And if you were here two weeks ago, I was not preaching last week, two weeks ago I talked and gave even some examples of some real-life, relatively modern-day giants that some of you, if you're old enough, would have remembered. And his escape, his name escapes me now, but he was, was well over eight feet tall. Another giant. That's what they mean. They're not talking about some cartoonish kind of figure that's emblematic of something. When you are reading historical narrative, unless the text is very clear that what you are reading is a, a, uh, allegory or it's a, an allusion to something or it's metaphor, it's simile or what happens to be, it is to be taken as fact. And that's the attitude we have to come to 1 Samuel with concerning David and this warrior Goliath. One of the perplexing aspects of David, at least in in my getting acquainted with him for well over four decades now, is the fact that here we have this man who was hand-picked by God, by the all-knowing God. So God knew everything there was to know about David and then some. And yet 
God picked him, even calling him a man after God's own heart. But what we see as we go down the timeline here is a very, very flawed individual. So flawed, in fact, that he ends up orchestrating the murder of one of his most loyal soldiers because David had taken his wife when he was out to battle and had an affair with her and was now trying to cover his tracks by whacking her husband. And you say to yourself, wait a minute. This is, I mean, God knew all this, and yet he still calls David a man after his own heart. Those two just don't seem to square. And I understand. I feel your pain. But as we are now just at the very beginning of getting to know David, we see, we start to get these, these substantial glimpses of the heart, the true heart, flawed though it is, of this one that God handpicked to be the next king and arguably the most famous name, if you will, or the biggest name in Jewish history and in Judaism and in Old Testament history. So we left off last week with David and Goliath basically standing face to face, ready to go. So we pick up in verse 48, only to read, then it happened that when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Don't go through that too quickly. Did you miss it? David ran and ran quickly to meet the Philistine in battle. Think for a moment now. Just trying to, you know, get you to put your, your, to appreciate the, the situation here more. And again, the core of who David is. Think about any number of, of moments in your life where for you, you know, it was pretty intense. It had, it was the kind of situation that may have repercussions that go well beyond the, uh, you know, the immediate future in front of you. It may be something as straightforward as, should I pull the trigger on the purchase of this new vehicle, which today, if you buy a brand new car, do you know a six month, uh, six month, a six year loan is not uncommon? I, I went, what? Are you kidding me? Wow. That's why I buy 10-year-old cars, seasoned, vintage. Maybe it was your decision that you had to make when, surprising to you, you got not one acceptance to a college in the mail, but three. Oh, man, I wasn't expecting three. So, Lord, uh, wow, this is a big decision. How do I know which, I, you know, help me out here. Or even a weightier decision, like whether to end a relationship that you've had going for several months or perhaps even for several years. Or maybe an employer of yours gives you a mandate. They give you a job that you have to do with in your job that is absolutely in violation of your conscience. But knowing that if you refuse, it could have severe repercussions on your ability to earn a living, even on your career perhaps. These are tough situations of an increasing nature that I've given. And they do have life-altering consequences, but none of them are quite literally a life, potentially a life-ending situation. Would you say that once you believed that you had God's mind on the matter, that you are charged with whatever it is that you are, are praying about, that you attacked the situation with such confidence and certainty that you didn't simply sneak up on it and kind of stick your toe in the water, as we say, 
to get, oh, well, let me, I'm not sure, but let's test it out. Oh, that's not bad. I'll go in with my whole leg now. Oh, that's not bad. I can handle that. Two legs. Or did you just flat out sprint to the challenge, attacking it without any thought of, what if I'm wrong? David is young. And what he has bitten off in facing Goliath was either the result of a demented young man with a death wish or it was clearly the moving of the Spirit of God upon him. The battlefield-ready, armor-laden warrior Goliath is laughing, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, literally laughing at how ridiculous the fight is. And he makes his way to the armor-baron shepherd boy, And the inspired text says that David ran quickly toward the battle line. Again, it's not like David is is merely running here to a, a loan officer at the bank to sign some papers for a debt. And David didn't just stand still holding his ground, waiting for Goliath to come to him, maybe feeling emboldened a bit with the army of God standing behind him. And neither did he continue hurling threats at his gigantic enemy, maybe trying to bide time, hoping, wishing, praying, God, okay, make his heart stop or something, kill him before I even have to go battle this guy. No, the text clearly says that he ran, and he ran quickly to exercise judgment on the one who dared blaspheme the holy king of Israel. And that's what it was all about. David was not foolhardy, although it may seem arguable under the circumstances, but what got David's dander up was not the name-calling, it wasn't the taunts by Goliath and the threats, but Goliath's speech, advertently, inadvertently, haphazardly, carelessly, or intentionally, was focused as an assault against the omnipotent, omniscient character of the Lord of the universe. And David, who loved that Lord, could not stand to let it go unanswered. As we continue down this historical timeline of David, we don't want to lose sight of these moments in his life, especially when we read of his serious failings that I've already mentioned a couple of, when he actually becomes king. And yet, in spite of all that, as I said, God continues to label him as a man after God's own heart. What made David who he was was, of course, the Spirit of God. But accompanying that, this no-account little shepherd boy also was a real person with real-life, daily-grind kinds of experiences when he was out in the wilderness as a shepherd. As the narrative progresses, David consoles King Saul in his understandable doubts concerning David's stature as well as his lack of battlefield capability. And David shares with him how when he had been out in the wilderness tending the sheep, that he had taken down a lion and a bear. And he did so with his bare hands. And we know he wasn't lying because it was the word of God that tells us that. And so David had previous experiences already leading up to this monumental task that were examples of being being acquainted with the might and the faithfulness of his God when that monumental challenge grows even larger in the person of Goliath. So he had been prepared by God 
to have the kind of practical faith needed to attack the mouthy behemoth. So there's David and there's Goliath. Mano a mano, except not really. Because we know that it was mano a mano e Yahweh. It was hand to hand with God. Well, verse 40, 49 and through the rest of chapter 17, it tells us of what really turns out to be a very brief battle between David and Goliath, the Philistine warrior. Now, David, as I see it, grabs five 44 magnum pebbles to use in his sling. His sling, though, you know, isn't ordinary. It's It's got a projectile velocity that is supercharged by the creator of the universe. And David, at least in my mind, has brief conversation with the giant, admittedly not found in the inspired text. Perhaps it will be found in the some obscure Qumran scroll that hasn't been found yet. Nevertheless, I see the exchange going something like this. I know what you're thinking, punk. You're wondering... Did he use five stones or four? And to be honest with you, I lost track in all the excitement. But being this is a 44 magnum sling, you got to ask yourself a question. Do you feel lucky, punk? All right, that's all right, that's all right. David's projectile, supercharged, (laughs) finds its place at the very small, just about the really the only unprotected by armor that, that Goliath would have on him, the frontal bone of his skull, very small where the helmet ends and then his, his shield would perhaps cover or what have you. And it finds the only place where it can go. And the added detail that the text tells us is that the stone sank deep into Goliath's forehead doing Chris Kyle and every other sniper proud. Whether that killed him, and I've always wondered about that. Did that kill him or did he just, you know, kind of go unconscious being knocked out and then David finished things off as we read. I don't know. The point is moot because you might remember from a couple of weeks ago that part of the exchange between David and Goliath was him assuring Goliath that when all is said and done, you're going to lose your head on the battlefield. Well, in the customs of the day, though they seem perhaps barbaric to us, DNA identification would not be discovered for several thousand years. And so it was routine battle protocol to bring back the head of one's enemy, thus proving that, in fact, the enemy had been vanquished. There was no question about identity. You know, if he comes back to sound, he goes, you sure you got, you sure you got Goliath? I mean, we're talking about Goliath. And he goes, pretty sure. Having no sword of his own, he borrows the giants. (laughs) And with both poetic justice and in wonderful literary irony, David uses Goliath's own sword to remove his head, bringing back proof that he, in fact, had killed the taunting enemy of God's army. Well, the army of God, of course, is now there. They're invigorated. They're fired up seeing seeing little David take out the big bad-mouthed leader 
And so they start charging the Philistine army, who is already in retreat, seeing Goliath go to the ground and get beheaded. But let's remember the background from weeks past. God, remember, has removed his spirit from Saul along with Saul's throne, and he has given both to David. From this point on in the historical narrative, Saul will continue to fade into obscurity while David will continue to gain in prominence and notoriety. So we finish chapter 17. And we come to chapter 18, and there is quite a radical change in both scenery and vignette. Verses 1 through 3. Now it came about when David had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And I have to tell you, I truly wish that I did not have to go where I have to now go with this pericope. But I have to. Because unfortunately, we live in a day when the words of Isaiah are being played out daily, not just in our city or in our state or our country, but worldwide. Isaiah writes in chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. About 30 years ago, I noticed a phenomenon that seemed to be starting to recur in culture. A concerted effort, it seemed to me at any rate, was being made to establish this this very poignant impression that certain behaviors that had, through the course of civilization, been acknowledged and been scorned as deviant were suddenly being embraced as commonplace and even healthy. It was becoming apparent in culture that, as the phrase goes, every time I turned around, some other famous and accomplished person in history was suddenly discovered to have an affinity for people of like gender with essentially no evidence other than some warped manufactured innuendo. And of course, these famous people, for the most part, were long dead, meaning they couldn't speak for themselves, making it easy for those with such an agenda to advance the normalcy of such a perverse lifestyle with unsubstantiated nonsense. And time went on, and the powers of darkness continued powerfully at work in culture, corrupting the image of God, giving more and more every impression that there was hardly anyone, especially in the fields of the creative arts, like music or dance or art or poetry or theater, that were defined as normal by thousands of years of science and history and tradition. Isaiah's words, again calling light, dark, and evil good, picked up momentum directly proportional to the rejection of God's truth 
revealed to mankind. By the time that we moved here in 1990, and I started writing for the newspapers, you would have to work somewhat arduously to find someone of renown or importance in world history who actually expressed a healthy God-defined sexuality. Just in the course of my working up this message this week, I learned that George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Ben Franklin, not that Ben Franklin, the other Ben Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, Richard Nixon, and 15 of the other founding fathers were all in the grip of aberrant sexuality according to the reviews of the new historians. And what is quite interesting in my brief researching of this was that for the most part, if not without exception, these crazy allegations that I was reading about seemed, even though from all these different sources, seemed to all go back to one source. A man by the name of Larry Kramer, who 30 years ago founded the rabidly activist pro-homosexual group named ACT UP. And I mention this because it is a common technique to use in pseudo-scholarly pursuits where you document what looks like I have ten different authorities all saying, oh yes, this, and yes, they're saying the same thing, and this source is saying the same thing. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, what you find out sometimes at the end of the day is yes, it looks like ten different sources coming from ten of these different people, but they're all citing the same singular individual. It's common even in science as well. Why, why such an introduction to the opening of chapter 18? Because in the past 30 years, the Bible, like everything else, has become the new target of such activism, finding exceedingly bizarre, warped, and weak ways of discovering that the Bible not only does not condemn same-gender attraction, but even celebrates it. And so with these opening verses of chapter 18, the characters of David and Jonathan became ripe for the picking by the generation of the sexually obsessed. So collegians, now, present, and future, please pay attention. It came about when David had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit from the Hebrew Koresh, which means to be bound to, that will come next week, to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. In a moment, I am going to be citing from a website that poses as a gay Christian website. 
And let's remember, too, stating what should be obvious, that there is absolutely nothing concerning the Internet protecting anyone from anything a website claims to be. Just because somebody is pretending that they are a born-again Christian and was raised in the church and loves Jesus with all their heart and mind, but I've had this awakening, doesn't necessarily mean that it's true in any way, shape, or form. It is a very clever tactic. And so what happens is, is followers of Jesus who are already confused having grown up now in the perverse teachings of public education where it is rampant. Stories shared with me again just between services. Confusing to Christians who are now looking for, for what, yeah, you know, I've heard these things in school or wherever and what is the truth? And so they go online and they go, oh, well, here's a Christian website. Oh. Oh, oh, and all of a sudden they start thinking, you know what? My pastor really is a hate monger. He really is a hater. He's a homophobe. He's all of that. And they stumble on to a website like this, which I'm not even going to give you the name to it. If you text, uh, uh, contact me PM, I may, depending on who you are, um, give it to you because I don't want to stumble anybody because this is one of the best presentations I mean best, from having the appearance of being rigorously objective and scholarly, which is why I'm going to take the rest of our time together this morning to pick it apart. Confusion is Satan's master plan in causing doubt into somebody's heart and mind as to, did God... Is that really what God said? Is that really what God teaches? He started in Genesis 3 with Eve. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? I mean, are you sure you heard him right? Well, now that you mention it, hmm, maybe not. Satan uses doubt. Again, causing someone who thought they knew from God's word what was actually said, but maybe they misunderstood or were confused. And this is why I insist and I push and encourage all of us, all Christians everywhere, to be reading the Bible for themselves. The issue at hand in the text is what does the word that is inspired by God in the Hebrew, acheb, three-letter word, what does it mean as it is translated the word love describing David and Jonathan's relationship? The website begins in what seems to be a very legitimate and honest inquiry, as I mentioned, trying to get to the truth, which is what makes it so crafty and pernicious. This is from the website. From the author, how then are we to understand the use of love, achab, in 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 3, 1 Samuel 20, verse 17, and 2 Samuel 1, 26, where it describes how Jonathan loved David in the context of a 15-year intimate partnership. Oh, did you catch something there, collegians? Yeah? If you did, you're impressing me. The last Nine words of what you had up there. Just changed 
everything. In those nine words, the honest inquiry just became manipulated to a predetermined conclusion that the author wants. Again, the author. Jonathan loved David as fully, as intimately as anyone ever loved a woman. Jonathan loved David and David loved Jonathan. God emphasized that fact in the Bible so that for all eternity, everyone would know that God affirmed their same-sex marriage relationship. Another leap! Wait, what? Where'd same-sex marriage come into play here? It's called argument by assertion and crafty insinuation. Hopefully you won't notice. The author continues, because God does nothing by accident. This gets, this is really clever. Because God does nothing by accident, we'd say amen. The Hebrew word usage by the Holy Spirit is not accidental. I say amen. And I've used basically those same words how many times over the decades here? Hey man, you're right, man. This guy's as orthodox and right on as can be. The unsuspecting reader thinks, wow, he's really digging into this. Talking about three-letter words from the Hebrew. From the website. Many Christians understand the Jonathan and David story as God's wonderful message of inclusion planted by Jehovah God in Holy Scripture almost 3,000 years ago because he loves his gay and lesbian and transsexual and transgender children as much as he loves his heterosexual children. Did you just catch that? Another leap. He took a leap from homosexual love without even taking a breath, to transgender and transsexual. Now, here's the point, collegians. Even from the author's bias, even given his bias, is that a reasonable conclusion? It is not. Why? Because even if this was talking, even if this was talking about homosexual marriage relationship, that has nothing to do with transsexual or transgenderism. Do you see? But he's all bringing it all in to the same little bits and pieces of truth. This is not scholarship. This is manipulation. This is indoctrination. From the website. In telling the true story. (laughs) Yeah. In telling the true story of how much David loved Jonathan, God provides a strong affirming message for gays and lesbians and for the church about the sanctity of committed gay relationships and gay marriages which are within the biblical moral framework, committed, faithful, and non-cultic. And that I am going to bet you didn't get it, and here is why. Until or unless you have been steeped in the morass of this whole building juggernaut 
of sexual perversion and the image of God being perverted and his ideal for mankind and for one man, one woman united in holy matrimony for a lifetime till death do they part. Unless you have been steeped in that, you don't realize that those three words come right out of the playbook that have been in play from the beginning for the last 30 years. What am I talking about? The three words about the sanctity of committed gay relationships and gay marriages, which are within the biblical moral framework, dash, dash, committed, faithful, and non-cultic. The reason that is important is they come again directly out of the playbook. Why are they important to the playbook? Because when you go to the difficult passages of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's destruction of them because of sexual perversion, they deal with it by saying that wasn't about sexual perversion. It wasn't about the homosexuals in the, in the crowd and everything else. It was about non-committed gay relationships. It was about a lack of hospitality. When you come to Romans 1, it gets even more difficult because God spells out in there ever so clearly to a rational mind that one of the grave consequences of man turning his back on the knowledge that the Creator has given man, that there is a Creator and He alone is to be worshipped, is He will give men and women over to unnatural desires, one man for a man and a woman for a woman. Well, they go, well, no, again, see, that's the, that's talking about, uh, uh, what Paul so worked up about there, the kinds, of, he's talking about cultic sex, meaning at the, at the, uh, the pagan worship ceremonies where there was homosexual sex as part of the ceremony. Yeah, that's what God was angry about there, and that's what Paul's writing about. And again, he's talking about, about forced, uh, homosexual relationships. But when it's consensual and it's committed and it's faithful to one another, It's pure and holy and lovely. This is amazingly crafty, which is why it is so deadly. Now, at the beginning of all of this, my intention was to get to the other side of all of this. All I have done right now to this point is to tell you what the passage is supposedly has been said to mean by those who are pro-homosexual relationships as well as transgender and transsexual, using the Bible to justify it. I've told you what it doesn't mean. I haven't told you what it does mean, though, and why. That will be another message next week. And it is one of the most rigorous preparations that I have done, which basically means nothing other than I let you know that I don't go to some popular book that's out right now about Christians who hate homosexuals. And here's your sound bites that you can use in your sermons. I may even put a picture up next week showing you the number of linguistic, all linguistic books getting to the confident bottom of what does Achab mean in the text with Jonathan and David. It is compelling. It is strong. It is irrefutable to a reasonable mind. You must get the rest of this next week. Collegians, high schoolers, this is a great example of exactly the way the truth of God's word is being perverted and warped and yet sets the average individual on their heels because they go, wow, 
yeah, you know, that makes all kinds of sense. He's using the Hebrew word. He said this, he said that, she said this. Yeah, I get it. And what I am so worked up about, and I get wrongly accused that you hate homosexuals. I could understand why you would think that because I'm very passionate. No, what I hate are people who are dragging, pushing, and forcing created images of God, pushing them to the depths of perversion, sending them by God's word to a Christless eternity and making them feel good about it. That's what I am worked up about. Homosexuals, and there have been numerous ones in my lifetime here in Maine that I have had relationship with. And to the person, because I ask them after I've known them a while, Basically, what do you, so do you, do you get the impression that, you know, that I hate you and I just want to smack you with a Bible and tell you you're going to hell? And it's like, no. That is, they are people whom Christ died for. And their sins are no nastier than my sins. And I was saved by the blood of the Lamb, and that is their only hope and cure. And telling them otherwise is from the pit of hell. And yes, I get mad. And it's happening today, right now, from preschool on up. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Be here. If you know somebody who isn't here today, usually comes here, tell them they need to listen to this week's message in order for next week again to make much more sense it will be heady it will be rigorous it will be meticulous but if i do anything less then as far as i'm concerned i'm just like everybody else who says this is what it means why because i say that's what it means no we won't play that game with such an eternally life jeopardizing topic and manipulation of God's word because that is what love real love demands may have you stand Jim Higgs one of our awesome elders come on up close our time in prayer I don't know how I live up to that. It's awesome. What I'd like to do is uh, everybody on this side kind of move to the center and on this side move to the center. And uh, what I'd like to do is have a prayer of unity where we're going to hold the hand of somebody, that whoever you stand on the side, <coughs> Okay, everybody in place. All right, dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this straight, in-your-face message this morning. Father, we pray for those with children that are putting them into cultural danger because our education system 
is definitely broken. Father, we pray for them. Pray for the power of the Holy Spirit that will descend on each parent and each person here this morning. That if we've been wooed by some of the culture, oh God, that we pick up the full armor of God and we fight. We fight for our young ones as never before. We fight for ourselves, oh God. We pray that if there's somebody here this morning that has not yielded their life to you, that is by the blood of Christ, that we can be redeemed and saved just by saying, oh God, I yield my life to you. I forgive those that I've heard around me. Please forgive me, oh God. Become Lord of my life. Take over. Purge out the things I've been hiding. Forgive me, O oh God. And from this day forward, I will be drawing closer to you as never before. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.